0: All right, I feel like we are six months behind. Um, we know we're following the historical lectionary this year, and so we missed a lot of it. So we'll be looking at some of the, the things we missed, but we've, we've got one specific goal today. I don't know if we're going to accomplish said goal, but we're going to, we're going to try. But before we do that, I don't know what day it was. I received an email from one of the Christian ministries that I subscribe to. And it basically asked the question to pastors, what do people actually hear when you teach or when you preach? And I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to know this, right? So this is the two paragraphs that I copied from the article. It says this, the average attention span among people who listen to speeches is estimated to be somewhere in the 5 to 10 minute span. And often towards the lower end of this. After 20 minutes. No matter how interested we are. Our focus is depleted. And, un- and unless corrective action is taken. It will erode steadily until we literally aren't listening anymore. Longer uh, well the corrective action typically goes well somewhat on the people, but they they put a lot of focus on the, the speaker, right? That you have to be interactive. You have to get the people involved. You have all those things that I try to do, right? Looking things up. Oh, yeah, no, no, not PowerPoint. Okay, but all those things I attempt to do—asking you questions, trying to get you to an answer, telling you to look this up. Hey, check this. Those are corrective action that is supposed to help. In, in theory, in theory, but it raises a lot of questions in, in regards to the church. Now we know there are entire denominations who are very committed to this 20-minute thing, right? Because their messages will be between 15 and 20 minutes. And they don't go beyond that. And the reason they won't go beyond 15 or 20 minutes is exactly what I just read to you, because all the studies say people will not pay any attention. But if you only are getting 15 to 20-minute messages, then the question is, what can you really understand? If you you go to church for every Sunday of an entire year and you only get 15 to 20 minute messages, what can actually be taken from that by the end? Now, someone could argue, well, even if you preach an hour and people are there and they listen every Sunday for an entire year, they're not gonna get any more than the people who go to a church that only gets 15 to 20 minutes. Because everything after 20 minutes is what? It's gone. It's not retained. So I don't, know what the, I don't know what the answer is, right? To me, it seems ridiculous from just a practical standpoint that people would spend so much money to have buildings, maintain the buildings, pay the bills, pay salary for a pastor, and then you get 15 or 20 minute message. Like what's, like that seems like a, a lot of wasted money, right? You could, you think you could be able to accomplish more, but you could spend all that money, have someone preaching an hour, but if no one retains it, then, and then then, all we're doing is kind of going through the motions, right? We're putting on a show like we're, we're pretending. So I, I just, I don't know what we can actually accomplish if we do that. But I know this, the subject we're going to be dealing with today, we, you, you, well, you're never going to be able to deal with this subject in a meaningful way in 15 to 20 minutes. I don't think you can deal with this subject meaningfully in 40 minutes. I don't know if you can deal with this subject meaningfully in two or three or four or five hours. But the, the thing is, I think we have to always attempt to do that. So, here's what we're going to do. If we, if, I know we should be doing the lectionary readings for today, but we're not. I really want to w- focus on the lectionary readings from yesterday because they were very interesting. But we're going to go back to, to Monday. Because Monday, the lectionary readings, the first one, in fact, I'll pull it up here really quick. Uh, the first lectionary reading on Monday... Of the third week in ordinary time. Uh, the first one was from this uh from Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 and verse 10. All right. Uh we could look at that. There's nothing super, you know, oh, what what's going on here? The psalm was Psalm eighty nine. Okay, I could try to put these together. So I, I didn't really spend a lot of time on that. And then I got to the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3, and that's where I want us to go. Mark chapter 3, because that's where we're going to be spending a good portion of today. Mark chapter 3. So after 20 minutes, we'll just stop. Because No, right. Okay, Mark chapter 3. Okay, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. All right, everyone ready? Starting in verse 20. Now, the lectionary actually starts in verse 22, but I don't know why you would start there, so we're going to start in verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. All right, and the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils, casteth he out devils. All right, so we have a clear accusation being uh, leveled at Jesus, right? And this is being, and who is making these accusations? The scribes which came down from Jerusalem, teachers of the law, religious leaders, so the religious leaders come down. They look to Jesus, and what do they say about Jesus? What's the specific accusation or charge here in verse uh, 22? He hath He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. All right. So he has basically an evil spirit. He has a demon, and he cast out devils or demons by. By the prince of devils, right. In other words, he is casting out the evil spirits by an evil spirit because he hath this demon. He has the chief demon in, a, in a, a way we could put it, all right? So in other words, they're saying he's really possessed. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Now, before we go any further, Jesus is just simply going to try to, all he's doing is an argument's been made against him, Right? Yes? An accusation's been made against him. And he's doing what I always say that we should do in any kind of theological argument. What do we always do? I always agree, and then do what? Try to take it to its logical conclusion and see if it holds, right? And if it falls apart logically, I don't need to then do what? I don't have to make some, build some great counter-argument because I've already shown the logical inconsistency in the argument. So I always like, okay, let's take your argument. You're right. Now let's follow it through. And if it falls off the cliff, then I don't need to do anything. So to round about what Jesus is saying, oh, you're saying that I do this by, by Satan? You do that? I'm doing this by an evil spirit? Okay, well, let's take that argument. And then what does he say? How can Satan cast out satan. Like if I have if I'm doing this by the power of satan, why would satan be casting out satan? Why would a devil be casting out a devil? And then what does he go on to say? To build on this uh, response he says what in verse 24. And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now, when we have verse 24 and 25, We have to, we, we, we. this, this, a lot of, this turns into a major issue here, okay? Because it seems like a, a, a very important principle. And this principle has been taken and used in speeches and sermons all over the world. And it goes something like this, united we stand, divided we fall, right? And they're like, if the kingdom of Satan is divided, it will fall. And so then they immediately leave the argument. And then they take this principle and start applying it to where? To everything, right? They're like, this principle is true about our country. United we stand, divided we fall. This is true of the church. United we stand, we divide and fall. And it all sounds good. This is true of a family. This is true of everything. I don't know if that's what Jesus is attempting to do here, right? Because all he is attempting to do is say, hey, look, by your own logic, if I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan, that seems to make no sense. And it would be simply the Satan fighting against Satan. That seems ridiculous. I think that's all Jesus is attempting to do. Because if we're not careful, if we take this principle and make it some kind of dogmatic principle, you do realize what that would say about Christianity, right? I mean, like, how does Christianity continue to stand? Because Christianity probably is more divided than maybe anything. I mean, there is no agreement, literally, on anything. I mean, on anything. Uh, like, it's 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 crazy how much disagreement there is within the, the world of Christianity. So, I don't I don't know what we do with that principle. Do I? Well, oh yeah, you de- definitely can. You definitely can. But I'm just saying, Christianity is so so crazy uh, divided. I mean, like, I mean, just think about Christi- Just think about Christianity. Cannot even agree on the word baptism. We can't even agree on what the word means. We don't agree on the word repentance. We can't even agree on what the word repentance means. We can't even agree truly on if we're saved by salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, even though you can have 15 churches who say they all believe the same thing. They don't believe the same thing about salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Because immediately they'll say, you're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. However... You got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, a, E, because, and then if you don't, then you were never, well, then it just destroys the whole concept. So it, I don't know what we do with that principle because I, I, I think maybe the only, maybe, maybe we could look at it from this perspective that from a human perspective, Christianity should what? Taking this principle shouldn't exist. It should have already imploded, collapsed, and shouldn't exist. So then it would have to demonstrate that that maybe only by God's mercy and grace that there's even any resemblance of it left. Because from a human perspective. But I don't think Jesus is trying to set out a big principle here. I think he's just simply trying to say, look, by your logic, then Satan is fighting Satan. And you would think that would be not a good idea, right? Right? So that's all he's trying, I think that's all he's trying to do. I think sometimes we take these principles and do more with them than were intended. He goes on to say, I'll read verse 26 again, and if Satan rise up against himself, oh, I I haven't read this one, and if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, then he will spoil his house. Verily, I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, the way the King James puts it, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an un clean spirit. Now this brings about which subject? The uh, Some call it the unpardonable sin. Some call it the unforgivable sin. It's referenced as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the subject, and so that's what we're going to be working on, we're going to try to understand it, and we're going to attempt to understand it before we're done, and it's probably going to take all of two hours. We're going to try to understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We will look at all the other ways people attempt to understand it. We're going to try to understand it from a dispensational point of view, a very unique point of view that most Christians probably would not agree with, but I think the dispensational view is somewhat interesting. Because if I just look at the other ways, you can probably already tell me how most people view the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. right? You can probably tell me. I'm assuming you all know. If I ask you to articulate the, the dispensational view, I'm pretty sure most of you will look at me and not know what I'm talking about. All right, so that means that's why we're going to do that because we've talked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit multiple times. Now we're going to add a different understanding to it and see. We'll look at it more like a, you know, a hypothesis and we'll test it and we'll see where we end up, all right? So first, let's do this. This accusation that is made in Mark chapter 3, right, And the accusation is made really in the entire section, but they accuse him basically of having a demon and that he's doing things by the power of Beelzebub or by the power of Satan, all right? And then Jesus clearly warns them that, hey, every other sin can be forgiven. Other blasphemies can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. The accusation made against him is made countless times in Scripture. So let's start looking at a number of them. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let's try to find all the places where this happens, or at least where it's recorded. Some of them will be the same event recorded. Some of these will be different. All right. Matthew chapter 9, there's a lot here we need to look at, but we'll just go to the key verse here at this point, all right? Uh, And you'll if you'll look at verse 33 or verse 32 for some kind of context, Matthew chapter 9, verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitude marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said... He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Go to John Chapter Seven. John Chapter Seven. John Chapter Seven. All right. If you go back to verse 14, for some context, John chapter 7, verse 14. Now, now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? So Jesus is doing this teaching. And what did they say in verse 20? The people answered and said, Thou hast a devil who goeth about, who goeth about to kill thee. Right? Then Jesus begins to answer. So, even the people make the accusation. Right? So the scribes make the accusation. Pharisees make the accusations. Even the people make the accusation. This is obviously a very common accusation against Jesus. Go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 verse 48 John 8:48 What do we find? Then answered the Jews and said unto him Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? All right. John chapter 8 verse 52 Then said the Jews unto him Now we know that thou hast a Devil, Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest it. And so they go on to, to say, but they accuse him of a devil. Go to look at John chapter ten. John chapter ten, verse is it twenty or twenty-one? Okay, we'll go to twenty, or we'll go nineteen for some some context. John chapter ten, verse nineteen. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews. Uh, for these sayings, and many of them said, verse 20, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil, can a devil open the eyes of the blind? But there was the accusation being made, is it not? Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Yes, this was common. Matthew 12, now these are uh, the other records of what we read in in Mark chapter three, right? So we just will see the same same kind of story play out. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, and so much that the blind and dumb both spake and saw, and all the people were amazed, and say, is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus basically goes on and says some of the things we read in Mark. Look at Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, verse 14 and he was casting out a devil and it was dumb and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. But when some of them, but some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. All right Then starting in verse 17, Jesus has the same discussion and he gives the same basic argument because it's the, it's the record of the same event. Right. Jesus is like, OK, you say that I'm possessed by a devil. Well, if I'm possessed by a devil, then the kingdom of Satan is divided. How does it stand? It makes no sense. It's not logical. Right. So he gives his basic argument. And then in all, all these cases, he warns them and tells them that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what? Unforgivable, it's an un, it's an unpartable sin. Do not commit this. Now, before we move forward, before we even do anything else here to try to figure this out, let's consider this. What are two very important lessons that arises from all of these accusations about Jesus having a demon? What are some, uh, some possible, I don't know if we have two, what are some possible lessons that should arise from this? What are some possible lessons that should arise from the fact that Jesus is being accused of having a devil over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again? Okay. 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 Well, I think, well, I think, uh, I'm going to go kind of that direction. I think the first major point that we should write down and the first major point we should take from this, clearly, they, there's no way for them to argue against the miracle. In other words, they can't, they don't, they don't say, well, this is a sleight of hand. This is a trick. That person really wasn't this. This person really wasn't that. They, they seem to be 100% have to acknowledge the reality of the miracle. They just have they just claim in other words they can't explain away the miracle so what do they do? They explain away the source of the miracle. They can't they can't they can't they, can't, they don't seem to have anything uh, any ability to say, "Well, wait a minute people, this is fake. This guy really wasn't sick. This guy really wasn't this. This guy really wasn't blind. This guy really wasn't dumb. This is all fake. This is all a show." They don't even attempt that argument. They just change the source. And they claim that the source of the miracle. They don't deny the reality of the miracle. They just cha- deny the source of the miracle, which seems to indicate then that Jesus was really doing miracles. Because even his own enemies don't. Go, they, I mean, you think they would be like, well, hey, this, come on, guys, this is fake. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't do that in any way, shape, or form. They 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 have a completely different approach. So I think that's I think that's important to note, right? Jesus did real miracles. They couldn't explain away the miracle. They could only ex- explain and attack the source of the miracle. So I think that's number, number one. Number two, what is a, a second very, very important lesson that we should take from this? And it should bother us greatly. Should bother us greatly. Or should at least concern us greatly. Okay, who are the people making the accusations? The scribes and the Pharisees. What could we uh we, we could just put them to if we group them together, what could we call them the religious spiritual leaders of the day they're the theologians they're the Bible scholars right but i' but i but I just want you to see that the, what it should concern us is that those that are learned in the scriptures are the very ones who made an accusation that was completely false. They accused God. They accused God because that's, Jesus is God in the flesh. They were accusing God of doing something by the power of Satan. That means how spiritually blind they could be, which should always make us a little bit concerned because in it it's it's always interesting at least in the world of Christianity how we always perceive that who is blind We always perceive everyone other than us is blind. Right? No matter what the issue is, right? If, if I if I preach something and you disagree with me, you'll think that I'm blind. Right? How, how does he not see it? It's so clear. It's why do we why is it that we always think that we see and others don't? I mean, Christianity is built on that assumption, right? We see the world does it. We see that denomination doesn't. We see that person doesn't. I see that preacher doesn't. Why do we always perceive that we have 2020 vision and everyone else's vision is shut? Like, that's something that should be a little concerning to us. Because if you think about it, your, your Christian life is built on that assumption. Even, even for those of you who are maybe not the confrontational kind and you, you go along to get along, you still in your mind believe that you're right. Because if you didn't believe you were right, you probably would go. You would be somewhere else, right? Right. If you didn't believe, I mean, if you, if you, if you didn't believe you were right and you believed Catholics were right, then you would be what? You'd be a Catholic. If you, if you believed that, if you didn't believe you were right and Lutherans were wrong, you would be a. Lutheran, or be a charismatic or be a Pentecostal or, or you know what I'm saying? The point is everyone believes that they can see, which is a little bit concerning since Christianity says that what do we all have for a heart? yeah well, how does Jeremiah clearly describes it? deceitful above all things if you have a heart that's deceitful above all things but you constantly perceive that you see and others don't you see that that's somewhat problematic right i mean it's 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 going to be concerning that these are the religious leaders and they don't get it now typically how do we understand this uh, from a theological perspective well from the reformed perspective we say well they couldn't see because god had not revealed it all right so that <laughs> But you see how, from a reform perspective, maybe that's why reform people sometimes are known for being very arrogant and condescending, right? Because then the idea is God's opened my eyes. My eyes have been opened by God. Now, if my eyes have been opened by God, can I be wrong? No, I mean you see where that you see where the reform world can be very arrogant and condescending because God opened my eyes. Well then, if God opened my eyes, I'm basically infallible. Now we would never claim that, but that's really the logical, if you take it to its logical conclusion, right? If if Sarah and Stephen are in an argument and fighting, and then Sarah is like, God opened my eyes to see the reality of this situation, what can Stephen argue against it? I mean, I mean, Stephen could argue, no, he opened my eyes. And she's like, no, he opened my eyes. No, he opened my eyes. No, he opened my eyes. Well, then it's an argument on whose eyes did God open, right? And then Joel could come along, you're both idiots, right? He opened my eyes. And then you're like, shh, you're grounded. Go to your room, right? Okay, right. So the point, but I mean, that's kind of the way it works in the reformed world, right? We claim God opened our eyes. And so now we can see. That's why I always say it's one of the most foolish things said from the pulpit and it's one of the most useless things said from the pulpit because pastors will say, God showed me how to understand this passage. I didn't understand. God showed me or God showed me that this is what he wanted me to preach. Well, it's a foolish statement because on one hand, that's saying what? You can't criticize my preaching. It's the most useless thing to say because even if I say that, so it's still going to disagree so that it doesn't really matter. It's the dumbest thing in the... It's like it's pointless to even say, right? But I, it, it is a concerning thing. So if you're reformed, we claim God opened our eyes. If you're not reformed, then what do you claim? That you figured it out. That you figured it out. I, my study trumps... Your study. Now, that that even shows up in the reform world as well. Okay, that shows up in the reform world as well. So, but then again, what makes your study better than their study? Why do you think you're so right? Now, in in Christianity, I understand that we believe that there's right and there's wrong. We believe in ultimate truth. We don't believe in relativism. But the reality is, it's very concerning to me how dogmatically sure someone can be and how dogmatically wrong someone can be, even religious leaders. And if you think about all the divisions within Christianity, someone's got to be wrong. Someone's got to be wrong about baptism. Someone's got to be wrong about repentance. Someone's got to be wrong about salvation. Someone's got to be wrong about eternal security of the believer. You can just go on and on and on. Someone's got to be wrong. But we always think that the people who are wrong are whom? The other person. So I don't know. I I think it's, it's just when I read this and I'm like, man, how wrong could they be? I mean, they were wrong. I mean, I mean that's wrong. Okay, do you understand how wrong that is to look at God and go, "Hey, you do things by the power of Satan." <laughs> that's that, that's seriously wrong, right? It's like when Peter was like, "Hey, Jesus, no, you're never going to the cross." And what did Jesus refer to him as? Satan, right? Like, "That's how wrong you are, Peter." But Peter was convinced that he was right. I mean, that's always the way it works. And that, that I, I don't know, that bothers me. But those are two things that we learn from all of these passages, all right? All, all of those passages. Now, obviously, when we get to the warning that Jesus gave in regards to this blasphemy, it raises some serious questions, does it not? What are some questions, when you hear about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and that it's unpardonable, it's unforgivable, what are some questions that should immediately come to your mind Is it just as a good Bible student or just a good reader, Okay, we, first of all, we want to know exactly what it is, right? And why do we want to know exactly what it is? We want to, we want to make sure, have we done it? Can we do it? Right? We, we, there, there's lots of questions. So we would ask questions like, can this sin be committed today? Can a saved person commit this sin and lose their salvation? Wait, didn't Jesus die for all sin? Wait, why isn't this sin forgivable? raises some serious questions, does it not? Now, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a concept that has been interpreted and understood differently by different theologians and different denominations. So immediately, we know that we're dealing with a subject where there is no agreement. I know, that is very frustrating. So let's do this first. Grab a Bible dictionary. And if you have the Nelson's New Illustrated, you can go to page five hundred and seventy-four. Five hundred and seventy-four. Here, you need this. What? What? Where? Uh, uh, oh, that this is a corrective action because I've been teaching now for how many minutes? <laughs> Twenty. Okay. <laughs> See. See, I take the corrective action immediately. Now, if I can find a dictionary for myself, I've got all these other dictionaries, and they're all the wrong ones. Okay, it's page five seventy-four. It's against the Holy Spirit, I think, is how it's labeled. See it? All right. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah, I already had it open in that one. Page five seventy-four. Everybody see Holy Spirit sin against? All right. Yeah, there it is. All right, is the corrective action working here? You're already lost, okay. Okay, refocused, all right, corrective action at work, all right. Here we go. Let's see what the dictionary says. It gives us how many paragraphs? What, three, four? Here we go. A sin that is often referred to as the unpardonable sin, because in the words of Jesus, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation mark 3:29 everyone see that jesus words about the sin against the holy spirit provide a clue to its nature when a demon possessed man came to jesus he was healed the multitudes were amazed but the scribes and Pharisees said he was healing through satan's power matthew 12:24 Jesus had cast out the demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. His enemies claimed uh, he cast them out by the power of the devil. Now stop right here. If we just go with that explanation, then we can kind of see a little bit maybe what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, right? It's not so much about Jesus. It's specifically about the Holy Spirit. And it is claiming because Jesus, if he cast out the demon by the power of the Spirit, and they say you're doing it by the power of Satan, they're claiming the Holy Spirit then is actually what? Satan. So therefore, it's an attack upon the nature of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important. If blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is an unpardonable sin, in other words, you're accusing the Spirit of being Satan. If it is an unpardonable sin, what does that seem to say about the Spirit? it could possibly be an argument that the Holy Spirit is deity. However, the only problem with that because on one hand, that sounds good. Like, that's, that's a typical argument that would be made. Like, typically in a class on the Trinity, you look at the individual, you look at the Father, you look at the Son, you look at the Holy Spirit, you look at proofs of their deity, right? You'll look at their attributes and da-da-da-da, right? And one of the, sometimes the argument is, well, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable, therefore the Holy Spirit has to be God. However, Jesus said in Mark 3 that blasphemies against other blasphemies would be, Forgiven, so they see that. That's kind of hmm, that. That kind of maybe could be argued against it. But we gotta get an idea, at least, of what it, what it is, right? Well, I'm saying if you claim the Holy Spirit is Satan, and that's unforgivable, well, the Holy Spirit would have to be something pretty significant for it to be an unforgivable sin. So therefore, the argument would be, clearly the Holy Spirit would have to be deity for this such severe punishment to be handed out for it. The only problem is, Jesus in this very section says that other blasphemies are forgiven. So, well, those other blasphemies would have to be against whom? Yeah, God, right? So, see, you see, on one hand, it sounds like a great argument for the deity of the Holy Spirit, but on the other hand, It's like, I don't know what that works because other blasphemies are forgiven. So I'm saying, because I I know at least in one or two Bible colleges, I've heard this argument presented. Well, see, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unforgiving. Therefore, the, the Holy Spirit has to be deity. All right, sounds good. Remember it for the test. But when you think it through logically, well, wait a minute, the other blasphemies are forgiven. Why is this blasphemy not? I don't know if I have a good answer. Okay, but... That's very clearly Jesus says it's not forgiving and they and they clearly outline here what it is so according to this what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan basically claiming the spirit is Satan all right does everybody kind of at least understand that all right. Such slander of the Holy Spirit, Jesus implied, reveals spiritual blindness, a warping and perversion of the moral nature that puts one beyond hope of repentance, faith, and forgiveness. Those who call the Holy Spirit Satan reveal a spiritual cancer so advanced that they are beyond any hope of healing and forgiveness. Thus committing the unpardonable sin implies final rejection of God's offer of pardon. All right, so... How then do they, how does the dictionary then try to explain it? Yeah, the reason it's not, the reason you can't be forgiven is because you're basically rejecting God. And because you're rejecting God, well, you can't be forgiven because forgiveness only comes through faith. Well, right. I mean, obviously they would say as long as, you forgive, as long as you continue to do the blasphemy, you can't be forgiven until then you would repent, then you could be forgiven because you're no longer doing it. That's how they would typically would say it, right? Is that if you're rejecting, you can't be saved. Well, irresistible grace would remove you from being rejecting to accepting. Does that make sense? No, no, go ahead and ask the question. This is important, because this is, this is a controversial subject. Right, and so the argument would be, in that state of rejection, you can't be saved. Irresistible grace would remove you from rejection to belief, so then you would no longer be rejecting. Does that make sense? Now I know in our minds like well if you commit the sin once then you should be never able to base it. They're just saying that there is no hope. Right. Right. Except that the hope doesn't it's not on our side of the cross that the hope exists. It's on God's side. God is the one who saves. Right. Talking going to say that there's no hope for we don't. Well there's no hope for anyone in that state. Right. Like for for anyone who doesn't believe, they are condemned, and there's no hope in a state of unbelief. Once they go from a state of unbelief to belief, then there is salvation. And they're just saying they're basically saying this is simply a rejection of of salvation. It's a rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's a rejection of God. And as long as you continue to reject, then there can be no forgiveness. So that. That's what, that's what the dictionary just referred to it as rejection. Right? Are you all not reading it that way? you all not reading it that way? The unpardonable sin implies final rejection of God's offer of pardon. Yeah, it's a rejection. God offers the pardon and you reject it. Well, in this case, they're rejecting it in a very specific way. Right, right, right. That's, that's, how, they, that's how they're understanding it. All right. let me, I'll just give you some of the different views because here's here's a, a, the very first view goes along with the Bible dictionary. Irreversible rejection. One, interpre- one interpretation suggests that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit refers to a willful and deliberate rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit, particularly in recognizing the divinity of Jesus Christ. According to this view, those who commit this sin are deemed to be irreversibly separated from God's forgiveness and salvation. Why? Because... They're rejecting God. They're rejecting salvation. Therefore, they cannot be saved. Does everybody understand that view? That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply what? Rejection. It's rejection of God. It's rejection of the deity of Christ. It's rejection of salvation. You're rejecting it. And whatever way that you're going about it, and therefore it cannot be forgiven until that rejection would be what? Overturn. Overturn, would, you would go from rejection to acceptance, right? Now you could get into an argument that you were moved from rejection to acceptance either by your own will or by God, depending on one's theology. But the point is, it would be like, "Hey, I don't believe any of this. No, I believe it. Okay, well now everything has changed. Right? Does that make sense? All right, that's that's that view. Now whether one agrees or, or disagrees, okay. A second view. So the first one is called irreversible rejection which is kind of what the dictionary went with, irreversible rejection. That's view number one. So if you want to just write down the different views, that's irreversible rejection. And it's irreversible rejection in the sense that as long as you're rejecting, it's irreversible, you cannot be forgiven. Does that make sense? All right. View number two, contextual interpretation Some scholars argue that the context in which Jesus spoke about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is crucial for understanding its meaning. They suggest that Jesus was specifically addressing the Pharisees who attributed his miracles performed through the power of the Holy Spirit to the influence of evil spirits. In this view, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit can be seen as a specific act of attributing the works of God to demonic sources. So they say... This, is, this this view is called contextual interpretation, that th- this is just very specific. The work of God is then accused of actually being the work of Satan. It's very specific. Very specific. So unless someone's like, hey, there's the work of God. No, that's the work of Satan. Unless they say those exact basic words and make that accusation, then nobody, you cannot be guilty of it. You have to meet a very specific criteria. Some may argue that and the contextual interpretation, I'll add this to it, it could be viewed separate, that for this contextual interpretation to work, what would really be required is you would have to be in the physical presence of Jesus. Jesus would have to do a work, and you would have to then accuse Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan. That, in other words, it would be so contextualized that the only way this could ever happen is you would have to live at then. And so, therefore, it has no interpretation beyond that context. Right? That's a view. So you've got irreversible rejection, contextual interpretation. Third, limited application, which kind of goes with this. Other believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a unique and applicable only to the historical context of Jesus' ministry. They argue that it was a specific response to the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus' message and miracles. Therefore, it may not have the same application or consequence in contemporary times. So other ones just say, hey, it's limited. It has nothing to do with us. It's, it's, it's for that time. Just don't worry about it. Just, just move on. Just move on. You, uh, that's one sin you can't commit, basically, is the idea. And then the fourth one, I don't know. I've never come across the fourth one. Didn't know the fourth one even existed. All right, but the fourth one is called forgiveness and repentance. The, uh, there are also interpretations that emphasize the mercy and forgiveness forgiveness of God. Some believe that even though blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a serious offense, repentance and turning towards God can lead to forgiveness and redemption. So the other this view just basically focuses on the fact that Jesus says it's unforgivable, but if you will repent, it will be forgivable. So the focus is not on. That it's unforgivable. The focus is on if you repent, it will be forgiving because God can forgive everything. So they just turn the emphasis on the forgiveness part and not on the unforgiveness part. All right? Those are four basic views. Now, this is going to lead us to I don't know, how much time do we have? All right. Forgiveness and repentance, yeah, that that view. Now, all of those views are, you. I don't know which view you hold to. I don't know which view you've used to explain it away. I don't know what you've done in, in, in the past. We've worked on this. I tend to view it as a very historical situation that requires the very presence of Jesus doing a work. I, I almost, uh, I, I make it a very limited thing that the only way for this to happen is all of those elements would have to be present. And the only way they're gonna be present is if Jesus was walking on earth. So I don't see how that could be present today. So I kind of argue for a limited application is where I typically go, kind of a contextual limited view put together. But there's another view that is rare, 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 rare. And if you're, if you're ever going to hear this view, you have to be in a church that is very much committed to dispensationalism. And this is the dispensational view, all right? So we are going, I'm going to do my best to try to articulate the dispensational view, all right? So we've done all the preliminary work. Everybody feel good about it? Everybody got a good understanding, all right? We we did corrective measures in the middle to break it up. All right, here we go. This is going to take a lot of work and we're going to need uh, at least part of the next hour to work on this, okay? So when we think of dispensationalism, Let's at least make sure we get some key points of dispensationalism, even though we've already covered it in great detail. All right? Dispensationalism, some of the key elements. God still has a plan for whom? Israel. God still has a plan for the land. And God still has a plan for a king. And God still has a plan for a blessing. All for Israel. God is not done with the nation of Israel. He's not done with the land. They will have a king and there will be a blessing. A future millennial and eternal promise for Israel. The church does not replace Israel as a nation or her promises and covenants. So clearly dispensationalism puts the focus on what? On Israel And making a distinction between Israel and the church. And typically, dispensationalism calls for what type of interpretation? A literal interpretation. A literal interpretation, all right? Those are some of the key elements. Those elements come into play when dispensationalists read this entire section about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we can clearly know that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit clearly seems to involve at least the people making the accusation that they are the religious leaders of whom? Israel. And in some of those accounts, something really close right before it is them referring to Jesus as possibly the son of David, his messianic title. So they immediately begin to see some of these hints. I'm like, hey, 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 hey. This, This has got dispensationalism written all over it. Now, there is a key phrase. Go to Matthew chapter four, verse 23. Go to Matthew chapter four, verse 23. We're not gonna get far here. Matthew 4, 23. Now, this is gonna require a lot of work. We're, we're we're, We're gonna spend the next hour doing the work. All right, everyone look at Matthew 4.23 and tell me what phrase jumps out at you. See, this is corrective measures. See, I'm doing corrective measures again. Okay, good news of the kingdom. How's the King James translate that? Gospel of the kingdom. Write that phrase down, circle it, put 47 exclamation points around it. That is an absolute key phrase in dispensationalism. The gospel of the kingdom and dispensationalism is a different gospel than the gospel we would think of. Well, yeah, that's what they're going to say. So here's what I want you to do. Let's at least start this. If you have a Blue Letter Bible app or whatever app you find, look up and see how many references we can find to the gospel of the kingdom. Let's start compiling our list. Have a list ready to go. Gospel of the kingdom. Tell me how many times we think we find it. I know it's gonna, it may be hard to put them all together because it's going to have the word gospel and kingdom, but... Maybe it will help you find the phrase, gospel of the kingdom. And that's the King James uses it specifically, gospel of the kingdom. Or good news of the kingdom, as I think the NIV puts it. Yeah. Okay, just four, right? Okay, someone's got five. So we'll be able to go through them relatively quick. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. We'll look at we'll look at them in a minute. All right. So we'll have one because we're going to run out of time. All right. So that just so that you know, this phrase they feel is essential to understanding what's happening with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that the gospel of the kingdom is very specific to Israel and that it's used for a certain period of time in the gospels and then all of a sudden it's never used again. The phrase is used and then boom, gone, just disappears. And you're like, why? Wow. why did it stop being used? Okay. Well, they think there's a specific reason why it stopped being used. Right? And then they think it uh, has a lot to do with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to try to put together and we're going to try to figure out. So to end this hour, let's just make sure we remember those two key elements we wanna take from it, all right? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as committed by these religious leaders, number one, indicates and shows clearly Jesus' miracles were real because they could not argue against the existence of the miracle. They could only argue against the source of the miracle. And number two, the main thing I think we should really be challenged with in the first hour is the fact that we should all be humbled by the fact that even the religious leaders of the day got it all wrong. So we've got to be very careful when we think we have it all right, because we could be very wrong. And it's hard to convince someone who thinks that they're right, that they could be wrong. But you could be. Your your understanding of theology, your understanding of doctrine, no matter how how strong and, and smart you think you are, you could be wrong. That's why it requires what? That's why it requires, and I cannot stress this enough. And I want to, and, I, and I wanna, if we end with any point, that's why it, it has to be a never-ending study of theology. You can't just what, what we like is to be handed a system, right? Here's our here's our team's view, and then we're like, that's it. And then anything that deviates from it this much, we immediately do what? We rail against it, and we get mad. We're like, no, I'm not gonna listen. You can't do that. Because uh, you have to go in, this is your assumption. Every time you open your Bible, this should be the assumption you should work from. And everyone should write this down. Your assumption every time you open the Bible is that all your previous understanding of it was wrong. Every time you open the Bible, your assumption should be that the last time you opened it and studied it, who was wrong? You were wrong. That's why you're studying it to, again. And then the next time you study, your assumption should be you were wrong. That's the, and I, whenever I say that, people are like, that's ridiculous. No, You, you can think that. You'll never get anywhere. Because if you think your previous study was wrong, if you, if you think your previous study was right, then what are you going to do with the next study? You're not going to go against your previous study. Well, at any point you were wrong, you're never going to be able to change your view. Right? You've got to be able to change your view. And that's why I, I, you know, obviously it was a horrible idea. (laughs) Because I'll never forget when I told the church, we're going to stop uh, learning theology. It's time for us to start doing theology. And that was not a good idea, was it? (laughs) That's when I lost most of the church, right? Nobody wants to do theology. They just want to learn it. And when they want to learn it, what do they want to learn? Their team's system. Just tell me, what's our system? Now, just keep telling me the same thing week after week after week after week after week after week. week. And I'm like, no, burning that down. We're going to do it. And by doing theology, that means what? We challenge everything. We create hypotheses. We create theses. We we try to challenge and look and and redo and, and, and put together. And does that make people comfortable? No, they don't like it. In fact, you'll be accused of having a demon. Okay, well, maybe that's a little hyperbole, but all right. But that's kind of what, I mean, that's what, was Jesus supposed to deviate from their understanding? No, because the second you deviate from anyone's understanding, you are viewed as wrong. And they, the people who, there's just no, in fact, it's just pointless. Churches say they love theology. No, they don't. They simply love hearing their system rehashed week after week after week with no deviation, no question, and no challenge. And anytime anyone who ever comes along and challenges it, does it always always go well for the people who challenge systems? No. They end up in the middle of a storm, do they not? Look what happened to Luther. Look at how you're never supposed to deviate. But how can we never deviate? when we see how wrong people can be. So we should be humbled by it. All right, but we'll look at the dispensational view and we'll work on that in the next hour. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, help us all acknowledge and be humbled by the fact of how wrong people have been and how wrong we have been. Help that challenge us to try to pursue understanding and not simply relying on our wrong assumptions of the past. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,